This work has been happening for a long time. You know, like I said, it's been 33 years since NAGPRA was enacted. There's decades upon decades of notes that were taken by people who didn't have the same priorities as Native people, weren't necessarily consulting with Native people. There's plenty of archives available. The, the ones we're all yelling about that we want back, those are the ones you need to look at and then give them back. Let us bury these ancestors on Cal State property, and they finally relented. And we reburied those ancestors finally after 20-odd years in 2016. But I know for my community, we're hoping to return these ancestors to where they were dug up. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast will center Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, the present, and the future. Welcome to the third and final part of our series on NAGPRA, entitled, This Work Has to Be Done, a sentiment shared in episode two by Dr. Anthony Burris. In part three, we'll continue with many of the same speakers and themes, and we will start with a more thorough explanation of CalNAGPRA, which is California's supplement to strengthen NAGPRA laws, as well as other steps taken to improve and refine this difficult process. But we will discuss the resistance to following through on the promises of NAGPRA as well, and hear a few longer personal narratives than in previous episodes. It is important for us to let our listeners know that this episode focuses on the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and will include significant discussion of how ancestral remains, funerary objects, sacred items, and objects of cultural patrimony have been collected in the past, continue to be disturbed in the present, as well as the process of repatriation and reburial. This is an extremely sensitive topic, but a very important one that deals with basic human rights and respect, or the lack thereof, and we want to make this clear up front. This topic, understandably, may be triggering for some. You will hear people discussing, in detail, the ways in which their ancestors' bodies have been and continue to be mistreated. Please take care while listening. My name is Brittany Arona. I am an enrolled member of the Hoopa Valley Tribe in Northwestern California. Uh, my expertise is mainly in environmental justice, water infrastructure, indigenous human rights, and environmental injustice in the United States and California broadly. Cal NAGPRA is interesting because it's California's NAGPRA. So it was actually passed in 2001 and really laid dormant for quite a long time. Um, it wasn't funded. Uh, many of the California institutions didn't have funding, much like federal NAGPRA, to really adequately do some of the things that is required. So institutions that receive funding from the state are required to adhere to CalNAGPRA. So CalNAGPRA has the same regulations around human remains, um, items of cultural patrimony, funerary objects, both associated and unassociated, and sacred objects. That means that state of California institutions, agencies, departments, all have a responsibility under CalNAGPRA. And so that means that also the UCs have responsibility, the University of California system, and then also the California State University system has a responsibility to CalNAGPRA. 
And the biggest difference also between Cal NAGPRA to federal NAGPRA is that federal NAGPRA leaves non-federally recognized tribes out of this process. But Cal NAGPRA has a requirement to include non-federally recognized tribes as well. And it's administered under the California Native American Heritage Commission, which was a part of Native advocacy in the state of California around the protection of um, cultural sites and what would become NAGPRA collections. So that's a big deal, too, here in the state, is that California Indian advocacy really started both the Native American Heritage Commission and then Cal NAGPRA, too, in 2001. And that's gotten a lot more traction with Governor Newsom and with the tribal advisor, Christina Snyder, to really address these issues around the collections that California institutions have. AB 275 strengthens the existing CalNACPRA law. So in 2020, AB 275 required inventories of NACPRA collections for California institutions. And I know that there are regulations that are being developed, led by the Native American Heritage Commission, and they're working through a strategic plan around that. So AB 275 really just strengthens a lot of what the original 2001 law required. I think an important thing to note as well is that Cal NAGPRA really uplifts tribal knowledge. It's trying to fill the gap that tribal knowledge, whether that be oral histories um, and tribally based and produced knowledge, is a really important function of that law, unlike with federal NAGPRA. Hoku Muktu Ka Sabine Talogan. Hello, my name is Sabine Talogan. I'm Chumash, and I am currently a program officer for First Nations Development Institute in their California Tribal Fund program. Cal NAGPRA is really, has always been trying to address the issue of non-federally recognized tribes not having essentially the same repatriation rights under NAGPRA. It is like many things and an unfunded mandate. And so so it's so in addition to trying to help non-federally recognized tribes, it requires all of the institutions that have state funding to comply with this repatriation law. The repatriation part is really about all institutions that have federal funding are obligated to comply with this law. And so that means that, you know, if you got a, a tiny little family museum that has never touched federal funds that and then they have, you know, arrowheads in their museum, there's actually not really a, a legal basis to try to enforce NAGPRA in that case. They should do the right thing. You know, there's obviously a moral argument. But what I like to point out is that if anyone got a PPP loan, then you just accepted federal funding and now you are obligated to comply with NAGPRA. So if you're ever at a little family museum, uh, that is a tip uh, to consider. How NAGPRA is really talking about if you have state funding. So there are organizations that are in the state that have not accepted federal funds, but do have state funds. And so you are now obligated to do all of this compliance that is mirrored with NAGPRA. And you're also obligated to work with non-federally recognized tribes. And then with AB 275, it was, it was really trying to strengthen that ability of non-federally recognized tribes to repatriate. I don't think that it did that very successfully, but another thing that it was trying to do was prioritize the traditional 
knowledge aspect of evidence building for repatriation. So um, under NAGPRA, there are different types of evidence that can be gathered to make the argument essentially for, you know, we have this item and we did this research and there is archaeological, anthropological, you know, historical evidence that we should repatriate it to this tribe. Among that list for NAGPRA is essentially traditional knowledge. I, th- I think that at this point in the law, the, the language is a little bit problematic, but Cal NAGPRA is saying, you know what? The priority is that traditional knowledge. That's the number one thing that, that really comes into play when you are trying to, uh, for example, affiliate a collection with a particular tribe. You know, we consulted with this tribe. They told us about their relationship with this place. This item is from this place. Therefore, that works out. Uh, That's the traditional knowledge that we need to facilitate this repatriation. It could be a little bit looser, in my opinion, than that. I think that if someone shares information about their family, they're telling the institution, my great-grandmother made these baskets in this way. I know this because we have this oral history that tells this story and the institution doesn't know where that basket came from. I think that that information from the tribe directly is already enough information to affiliate that item with that tribe and then facilitate that repatriation. This also means that traditional knowledge is prioritized in those categories that I had mentioned previously about, you know, what type of item this is under the law, you know, whether the object is a funerary object, a sacred object, object of of cultural patrimony, traditional knowledge can be the priority in in making those determinations. But the main idea, as I read AB 275, which was an update to CalNAGPRA, is that, you know, that should be the number one thing. It also tries to enhance tribal consultation obligations across the state. And that includes, you know, consulting with tribes before handling uh, foreign inventory. And so that means a lot of institutions are are not handling, uh, so not touching items unless, you know, a tribe has requested that they do so or uh, often a tribal representative is present, can do any, you know, prayer ceremonies and so on over those items before any of that type of work is done. Hesta Natalia Vanessa Escobedo, Ninoramak Hefork Choki Ambus. Hi, my name is Vanessa Escobedo. I'm an enrolled member of the Noramak Wintu Nation. I'm also Hoopa and Chicana. Even me who has an anthropology degree, like why would you want to keep these? You can't study them, you can't use them. Native peoples have been wanting them back. So the Native peoples that want them back, just give them back and be done. I just, I don't understand this fight anymore. It's an old, old, old fight that's been happening for years and years. And I know that I've been in this fight for quite some time now and only a little bit compared to other people. I know people have dedicated their whole lives to this. I know that there's also some trouble with California because, I mean, we have, if you count how many people have at least turned in intents to apply for federal recognition, there's 200 tribes in California. There's 113 federally recognized. And then, you know, I would say about 80. They're not federally recognized. That's a lot of tribes to repatriate to if we use CalNAGPRA and they don't want to. That's the bottom line is they don't want to. Honestly, the the NAGPRA process is actually kind of straightforward. Like you can read the law and be like, okay, 
I need to write a notice of inventory completion for this. And I need to write a uh, notice of intent to repatriate for this. And I'm going to consult with the tribes. And then we're going to, you know, do the, the 30 days, the 90 days, all, all of those things. It's all written out. And it's honestly not that hard. And, and so it's, it's quite strange, uh, if I say that. And, and then I also acknowledge that it's, it's very difficult for institutions to get it together. I live in California. I, I was working in California. It's an allegedly progressive state. We're trying to be better people here. Um, institutional cultures and willingness to repatriate, that's not really the barrier anymore. There are definitely places where th that's not the case. But like, there's a lot of these conversations where there still is institutional unwillingness to repatriate and lack of institutional understanding. But there are also practitioners within these institutions that are, are really trying to do their best. And there is leadership at some of these institutions, at parks, for example, um, that are completely on board with repatriation. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's, let's do this. Like whatever you staff need to do to make this happen, please do it so that we can move forward and, and we don't have this historical horror that we're still participating in here within this institution. I'm Greg Castro. I'm Tutros Linen in Rumson and Ramatushaloni and involved in way too many organizations and in many, too many events, doing too many things. Um, but I feel compelled to do that because um, I'm so grateful for the culture I have and I want to get back. Um, there's plenty of archives available. The, the ones we're all yelling about that we want back, those are the ones you need to look at and then give them back. Don't go, go, go for more because you, you can't take care of the ones that you already have. A major factor, if, if the law is quite clear to follow and where there is institutional willingness to repatriate as much as possible, one of the, the major things is the data about where, in quote, collections are. You know, there, there's different cataloging systems that change over the years. Perhaps those have not been reconciled at institutions where maybe cultural resources isn't the priority. There's, there's a million reasons uh, why curators don't get paid very well. And, you know, it's, it's hard to retain them. Um, you know, there can be turnover that contributes to bad data. So if we're even just talking about one site, so, so you know, a tribe might approach an institution, they're like, we just want to talk about this one site. We're planning a repatriation or a reburial in the next couple of years. We are trying to do this work in a good way. You know, what can we do to repatriate everything, everyone from this one site? There may be multiple catalog systems, databases that the institution needs to query. And that might not be good enough. This work has been happening for a long time. You know, like I said, it's been 33 years since NAGPRO was enacted, but there's also decades upon decades of poor notes, notes that were taken by people who didn't have the same priorities as Native people, weren't necessarily consulting with Native people. So a tribe may say, you know, did you find a piece of material that is of this shape? Because if you find this, you know, shape 
of this stone, then we're going to know that it's a, a burial, whether or not there are human remains associated with it, you know, and, and so we try to use that information. But that was probably not the priority of, you know, the archaeologists who excavated it in the first place and then took notes. Collections are huge. And you really have decades where Native American perspectives have not been respected or prioritized. And so it's it's just really difficult to figure things out. There's a lot of research that needs to be done. It's hard to tell where to draw the line of like when to stop looking because maybe that information is not there and you just spent 20 hours trying to find it. And unfortunately, you, you just have to call it sometimes. That was a really, really difficult part of my job in my responsibility managing a NAGPRO program. It's like, okay, it's, it's just not there. We, we called everyone we could call. We looked through, you know, the scratch paper notes. We, we went through the catalogs. We tried to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's just not there. And, and so we just have to accept that we don't have this information and we can do our best to, to move forward. Going back to the structural violence and institutions, it's very tied to each other in anthropology. For example, there was three anthropologists who sued the UC system about their infringements on their rights for uh, studying California Indian people. It's really interesting because one of those anthropologists was one of the professors at UC Davis. And how he would talk about Indian people is like, we didn't matter. He sat on some of the NAGPRA boards. So he was reinforcing the thought that Native people shouldn't be there, that Native people shouldn't have access to their deceased or their ancestors or their artifacts or our cultural items. And I mean, this guy was still at UC Davis like a couple of years ago <laughs> making decisions in the anthropology department. I mean, this is one example in, in UC, the structural violence in the government, the structural violence in all of it, the settler state. So it all reinforces each other. I mean, in the present, when you think about like San Jose State University and Elizabeth Weiss and that fight from her over being able to display, you know, Native remains in her office and to also like have the ability to study our people and the remains that we had under her care and the just very much being against repatriation. It was like, what, in 2021 that that was really happening? And this really strong backlash from her and like right-wingers and people in anthropology and archaeology that really still dehumanize us. And again, that's not everybody, right? It's not everybody in these fields that do that. I think there is a culture shift that's happening in these fields that I recognize and see. But hey, it's still a part of this narrative that's still happening with people who are holding on to our, our ancestors and not making those movements to change. And it's still a fight that Native people have to be recognized for our humanity. It's so inhumane. And that treatment is so inhumane. I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of a legacy of Native people who have continued to fight against this and have always resisted these kinds of acts of violence. Because it is, it's not benign. The collection of human remains and items of cultural patrimony and funerary objects and sacred objects was not a benign thing. It was an act of violence and warfare, really. I think there is a shift that's happening, and I hope, but I think there's still a long way to go.
you know, I don't even know her name, but the one archaeologist who just wrote this paper against NAGPRA uh, and against returning of human remains and, and artifacts and cultural items to Native peoples because to that person and to, to the field, you know, a lot of us, you know, we're open for the taking. We're open. You can come and just take whatever you want from us and leave. It's always been the case. And that continues to happen in our communities from anthropology. Um, I know anthropology has tried to make some strides, but, you know, I think it's rooted in colonialism. The biggest gripe I have, I mean, most Indian people have, is that you can get a whole anthropology degree and never take a Native American studies class. You know, I was on UC Davis campus and, you know, we had an autonomous Native American studies program and it was not required. But when we would go over to, to take anthropology classes, you know, they're about us. They're all about us, but it's never with us. So there are tribes that don't have land bases, and, and that makes it more difficult to, to function as, as tribal people, honestly, and also to to bring your ancestors home and give them a place for, for them to, to make their, their final journey. But also, it's often the interest of the tribes who are doing repatriation that those ancestors get back to where they came from. That, that's, that's a frequent kind of cultural practice. And so even if Museum X, and then this is a NAGPRA word, controls, so they, so they have physical possession and, and legal responsibility to repatriate this item, that item might have been taken from somewhere on private land or on a, something more complicated from a different institution's land, so something like that. And so then the tribe wants to get that back to the place where, where they were intentionally buried, uh, intentionally put there uh, for their final journey. It can be difficult, and, and in the case of, of private land owners, it could be impossible to facilitate that reburial in, in the preferred place, in the right place, honestly. There are folks throughout the California Natural Resources Agency that are making efforts to you know, advocate and, and get uh, reburial places set up so that people can do this work in the best way possible. But the main concern when you're when you're talking about reburial and you're at that stage is is how are we going to protect this place in perpetuity? How do we make sure that somebody doesn't come along in brave loop again? It's easily arguable to say that you know tribes should be able to control, be able to have that land and and steward that place and protect that place and, and have all the resources they need to do that. And when you do not have a land base, that seems, you know, almost impossible. So my heart really goes out to, to folks in, in that position. And it really helps that the public non-Native people are aware of these issues so that they can build that into their practice of being in good relationship with Native people and with the land that they're on, all of which is, is Native land. My name is Desiree Martinez, and I am a member of the Gabrielino Tongva community, and I am a practicing Indigenous archaeologist. I also do a lot of work with various Native American communities, helping to get their ancestors back into the ground. So when you look at and are thinking about repatriation and wanting to provide ancestors and their items back to the community of origin, 
what you first need to do is gather all of the provenience and provenance information that you have about the item in your collection or in your possession. So provenience being the three point location of an item. So if you're thinking about archeology, span how, like where exactly on the landscape was it found? How deep, how many layers, you know, the exact location that it was found. And then provenance is what happened to that item once it came out of the ground. Who touched it? How did it travel? Where did it go? Because ultimately you want to identify all items that might be associated with that ancestor. And so once you gather all of that information, particularly the location of where the items came from, that's when you start to reach out in what are what's called culturally affiliate. That's both under CalNagra as well as federal NAGPRA and cultural affiliation is to make a connection between the individual and item that might be in a repository to a modern day tribe. I think it was in 1996, Pachanga claims ancestors from a site called 270 from Cal State Long Beach. They got turned over to the Gabrielino Tongva community. And those ancestors from then until 2016 lay on the shelves at Cal State Long Beach because the Gabrielino Tongva had no place to rebury. And so it was finally through the negotiation by Cindy Elvitre, who happened to be NAGPRA coordinator for Cal State Long Beach and a member of the Gabrielino Tongva community, to continue to work with Cal State Long Beach officials to say, let us bury these ancestors on Cal State property. And they finally relented. And we reburied those ancestors finally after 20 odd years in 2016. You can repatriate. And this is also one of the reasons why the Gabrielino Tongva has not done a lot more repatriations is because we really have no place to put them. And so a lot of conversations is like, we'd love to, you know, to have those ancestors back, but right now there's no land. A lot of our community, as well as other non-federally recognized communities, are now creating MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding, with various land-holding agencies in order to ask for land in order to rebury ancestors. Los Angeles County just passed an ordinance that they would allow reburials on their land. Now, exactly, they haven't pointed out where yet, but those conversations can start to happen. Um, it was the same thing with UCLA. One of the reasons why repatriation didn't occur was because there was no land. Um, through the work of the vice chancellor um, at UCLA, she was able to find UCLA owned and managed property in which the ancestors could be reburied. So the ancestors of the Gabrielino Tongva, the Tatavatam, as well as the non-federally recognized Chumash were reburied um, in a you know, um, discrete location so that they could be returned to the ground um, since the tribes did not have um, land of their own to repair those ancestors. My name is Cindy Alvitre. I am uh, affiliated with the Gabrielino Tongva community. My direct affiliation is with Tiat Society and Traditional Council Pimu, which represents the maritime communities of the Los Angeles and Orange County coastal areas. The second round of repatriation with Cal State Long Beach, you know, to to those ancestors. I was successful in reburying of our ancestors, over a hundred of them, but initially in the record was recorded as 27 individuals. And once we went through the process of re-examining and, uh, you know, returning the identity to those individuals, 
those numbers increase. You know, that's that's a whole story in itself. It's something that the universities, they don't really want to acknowledge those things. They want it to be this uh, contractual development pr- uh, projects that are easily uh, mediated um, within six weeks <laughs> and a limited budget when it's like, no, you're you're dealing with human beings. You're dealing with a history that is that you have to own. You need to own this. There's no way around it. And uh, looking at those, reflecting on those ancestors and the way that they were written up by anthropologists and archaeologists and, you know, all the different uh, facets within those disciplines was completely objectified, limited, sterile, and uh, biased, absolutely biased and disconnected and exclusive. And I could go on and on and on. That's why we have it today. Because there's many of us, uh, the cultural confidence is there, the knowledge, the education, and the support by our own people and by legislators such as James Ramos, who has been the rallying point for Cal Nagra, that we can go in with more confidence and clarity and say, this is what is to be done. It's very simple. The end process of this is repatriation, return those ancestors to their descendant communities, rebury them, and let them be in peace and contribute to the healing of the communities. It's that simple. It's really simple. It's so simple, but complicated by them, by the institutions. The majority of our society wants to know nothing to do with Indian people, but we will commune with them through our collections. We will collect Navajo rugs, California baskets, other baskets, all those sacred things that belong to the people that was provided by anthropology to promote and to perpetuate this myth that the people were gone, that they are fixed in the past, that they are confined and you no longer have to commune. Mishmin Truhis, Kanraka Alexi Sagona, and I am a member of the Amamutsun Tribal Band, and I am currently uh, a graduate student at UC Berkeley uh, in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management. Many communities are hoping to return these ancestors to where they were dug up. And this could be difficult sometimes if it's occurring at a site owned on private property, it's privately held, and the person isn't, you know, willing to, to work with us. Um, and other folks have done, you know, bigger grave areas to return the ancestors to. But I know for my community, we're hoping to, to return these ancestors to where they were taken up and dug up. And maybe it'll be not exactly where it was originally, but still. I've done one reburial with the community. There was an issue where PG&E was, you know, digging up some land and there was a, an ancestor there that they came across. And so we we went up to the property and there was about six or seven of us. It was in the Hollister area and there was prayer. A song was offered. And then my brother and my uncle, Al Lopez, who recently passed actually, uh, dug up an area to put them back where they wouldn't be disturbed, offered tobacco. And that was a really powerful moment for me to to do that work. It felt like it shouldn't happen at all. Like, you know, in, in the first place of why do we have to go all the way out here? But it felt like given the circumstances of ancestors 
coming out of the ground, it is important for them to be put back. One of the ways that you make sure that people are following the plan that was put in place and making sure there are no new impacts to cultural resources that they didn't know was going on, you would have a monitor on site. And so that first started off as being an archaeological monitor. But again, if the archaeological firm is in cahoots with whatever agency or companies in charge of the project, they could be paid sometimes under the table to ignore what's going on. So tribes started to argue for Native American monitors, monitors that had a relationship to the tribe on whose land the project is on to be there to watch the project unfold. And when I do Native American monitor training, I was saying, you're there to watch the archaeologist. You're you're watching the project to make sure it's not impacting cultural resources. But then you're also watching the archaeologists to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing as an archaeologist. So if you come across something, then they're, you know, going to put a 50 foot radius buffer around it, take pictures, do documentation. What a lot of people don't realize is that there's nowhere in the law does it say there needs to be a Native American on site. That's part of the environmental review process and part of the kind of the mitigation measures. Anthropology needs to have verifications of like another anthropological record, not of a traditional record, not of traditional stories, not of traditional knowledge of saying like, no, right? Like these are our relatives and it's like, we'll prove it. And then it's really hard to prove with their their record keeping. And sometimes even when we do prove it with their record keeping, then it's false. It's like, wait, this makes no sense. It's like, we're always talking in circles. Um, it's kind of like the example I used earlier about the the guy who, who spends eight years on research to find out that California Indian people ate acorns and salmon. The spirit of the law is something that just needs to be more focused on is that we need to return. And why wouldn't anthropology want to return these things? I just don't understand why you want a a whole archive of baskets when we could be using these baskets in our ceremonies. I grew up in Sacramento. So after my grandparents, my great grandparents moved from paradise, my grandfather moved to Sacramento and then that's why I live in Sacramento, but we were really removed. My great grandma went to boarding school, Hoopa boarding school. And, you know, she had a lot of different experiences, like it's bad to be native and don't tell anybody that's your business. I guess she used to always tell my grandpa and my mom, like, it's your business. No one needs to know your business that you're native. Don't tell anybody. And so I grew up in a household with no baskets. When I go into these places, I just have all the baskets in the repository of Berkeley and the repository. I mean, UC Davis has a small collection, but they still have a huge collection compared to what I grew up with. And I see our baskets behind these glass cases and just not being taken care of in a traditional way. And it makes me so upset, but I know in one generation we can change that. I mean, I put my baby, my daughter, she's, you know, she was the first baby in our family in a really long time to be, you know, as soon as she was born, put into a baby basket. She was able to dress in a traditional hoopa dress when she was five. I didn't do it till I was like 30. So these things can change, but also, you know, when I'm looking to make her dress coming, oh God, coming up soon, <laughs> I, it'd be nice to have an example to go off of, but these, you know, we have to go to the museums and ask them to look at them. Uh, and I know a lot of uh, the in-between generations, my mom's age, and, and um, you know, they've done a lot of work in that way too. So it's nice to have them, but we would take so much better care of them. And I think they think that like they'll be lost, they'll be destroyed. And it's not true. We take very good care of our, of our, you know, they're, they're not just items. They're our, they're people too. They're our relatives. Um, and I'm talking about like our dresses and our sacred items, but the gaping holes in NAGPRA also say, you know, how can you prove that that's sacred? Instead of just listening to our elders saying like that's sacred, we use that in ceremony. That means it's sacred. Anthropology and archaeology are completely tied to justifying colonialism and continuing it. 
I do have an anthropology degree. When I first started learning about anthropology, my teacher did have a PhD in Native American studies, so it was a bit different. <laughs> but at the same time, it's still part of colonialism. And it's, you know, the study of humans. So anthropology is the basis of anthropology is the study of humans, the human beings. But we're, we were never considered human beings. We were always considered the past, part of the archaeology. We were consistently used as objects and not as people. The way that it produces manifest destiny is that you remove Native people from this place, from a piece of land. You put a knowledge production place on this land that excuses any traditional knowledge. You have these huge, massive waves of massacres that are happening across the state to remove Native people. So I would like to add a little more context about the Wiat massacre at Tulawat. But at the same time, I want to recognize that I'm not a Wiat. I am Noral Muk. Went to this 1860 Wiat massacre. There was a, a ceremony happening, and the Wiat people were were massacred. Tulawat is an island in Humboldt Bay, and it's part of the Wiat traditional homelands. Uh, they've been there since time immemorial, and they use this place for ceremonial purposes. What happens is that there is colonization happening. You know, in 1850, when California becomes a state. Um, you know, gold discovered in 19, 1849, and then a year later, the statehood and just the removal of Indians in, in general is happening. And so what happens is that the Wea are relocated, put onto the Klamath Reservation, and this happens uh, in 1855. So in 1860, uh, Wiat decide to hold a world renewal ceremony, which is extremely important. Everything seems very out of whack. Things are happening, the removal of Indian peoples. And of course, you know, other Indians talk to other Indians. So they know what's happening around the surrounding tribes. They want to do a world renewal ceremony, and it seems like a perfect time to do one. So a world renewal um, ceremony is practiced up in Northern California um, with a lot of other tribes. And it's for rebalancing the earth. So it's really important to think about that. We don't just dance for ourselves, right? We're dancing for healing of the world of everyone. And so what happens is that a world renewal um, ceremony takes place in 1860. And uh, what often happens is when settlers see a bunch of native peoples practicing their traditional um, ceremonies or, you know, gathered in a, in a way that's accessible for them to conduct a massacre. And this happens across the state. We see this highly documented, huge massacres happening during ceremonies. You know, a lot of it is that we are immersed in what we are doing in balancing the earth and, and we get taken advantage of. And so what happens is that settlers uh, come in and just massacre the Wiat. And there are certain survivors that, you know, are able to survive this, this horrible encounter. And again, this happens over and over again. I know for my tribe in Noralmuk, we were massacred at our traditional homelands as well um, during a ceremonial time um, that's over there by Nature Bridge. What ends up happening is that the rest of the Wiat that did survive are rounded up and placed on other reservations. And this dentist, this random ass dentist, we say archaeology, but a lot of these people were like people that just wanted to go dig up things. It's not this archaeologist. It's this guy who comes in who wants to unearth uh, these graves. I guess he's just a hobbyist archaeologist and with no training. And so he goes and he gets permission and he talks about how easy the permission was given to him. Like it was no big deal. So he comes in and he actually unearths 382 graves. He desecrates 382 graves. This one guy just living on this island and doing it for what, right? Just, I, I can't even, I don't know. Sometimes my mind can't even wrap around this whole story. But anyways, he unearths all of these remains and, and our ancestors and people who died brutally. And the community, you know, many years later, 
still found these items to be significant. And I think these are like funerary objects. And UC Berkeley refused to, to give these back because they didn't see it as, as being under NAGPRA's jurisdiction for many years, and then only recently doing the repatriation. That, that story struck me. You can understand why California Native people do not trust anthropologists and archaeologists today. Because there's this history where they refuse to listen, where they apply their own lens on what indigenous means, and they don't really benefit communities. They're not seeking to try to you know, ask, okay, how can we support your community? It's a different type of research that's more extractive and supporting the goals of UC Berkeley and its academic interests more than actually the communities whose lands were stolen or extracted so that UC Berkeley could be founded. Well, archaeology has really been seen as a tool for the colonization of the peoples that various explorers and settlers come into contact with. Right now, you know, I'm working with the Tongva Basketry Collective to revive basketry within the Gabalino Tongva community. And it's not about the baskets. Yes, it's about the baskets. You know, you can use them to cook. They're beautiful. You use them for presentation. But it's the relationships that are developing as we're learning the baskets, it's the conversations you're having with your relatives next door, next to you, as you're working on that basket, it's the sharing of information, skills and knowledge, as you're creating that basket. Yes, you're getting a basket at the end. But it's the relationships, it's the conversation, it's the exchange of information, which is the most important part about basket weaving. And that's missing from a lot of the interpretations that archaeologists, when you're just looking at the quote unquote facts or looking at the data, you know, this point is 7.2 centimeters wide, like all of that. Sure. But what does that tell you about the people? Because I can guarantee you my ancestors weren't using the metric system to measure their points in order to figure out how to go kill that particular animal. Yes, they did care about size, but not to the extent and specificity that we are doing it within this using the scientific um, skill sets that we're teaching our students now. Survivance was first defined by Gerald Visner in his work, and it that was really response to the various images that were out there in the general public about Native people being victims and barely surviving or eking out or not even existing. Their presence wasn't even recorded in a lot of times when you're looking at the history. Um, and of course, Gerald Visner's looking at literature, but, you know, it's all connected. And so, you know, he really wanted to point out that our communities, even through the onset of colonialism, yes, you know, we were bombarded by, you know, these interlopers and disease and famine and forced executions and slavery, et cetera, really decimated our populations, but we survived and we're still here. One of the things that I like to talk about, which really, you know, builds on survivance is this idea of thrivance. And that was something that was um, coined and used by Greg Castro, who is a member of the Salinan and Ohlone community. And, and when he talks about it in his lectures and articles, he thinks about he has this image of that cat poster of that cat's like hanging, you know, on a clothesline and is like, you know, just hang in there. And he's like, but that's not what the native communities are doing. The native communities are thriving. And just like I use the example of our Tongva basketry collective, we're going forward. Yes, we have survived, but we're moving on. We're going and we're growing and we're reclaiming our lands. We're reclaiming our traditions, reinstituting those 
spaces and places into our worldview and going out there and sharing our our history, not only amongst ourselves with those community members that might have been disconnected from their history, but also the general public. So people do know that we're here. And that presence and that showing that we're continuing to thrive is is most important. And that's something that we're all trying to fight against as educators and as scholars and as community leaders is that, you know, we have been silenced for so long or pushed to the margins that we're now coming out of those shadows in order to show that, you know, if it wasn't for our community and our ancestors, and quite literally, when you're thinking about Los Angeles in particular, our blood, sweat, and tears are the ones that built the city, built the state, built the country. And it's time for those ancestors to be honored for that. It's really important for Native community members to be involved in cultural resources management because cultural resources management is really built on the framework of the Western point of view of what cultural resources is. The even definition of cultural resources, resources being defined as something to be used by somebody else. And the way that Native communities come at those very same quote unquote things is very different. We don't think about them as resources. You know, the plants, the animals, the land, the water, those are our relatives. Those are relatives that we have a responsibility for, particularly within the Gabrielino Tongva worldview. At our inception and origin, we were instructed to take care of everything around us, that we're part of nature. And as being part of nature, we need to make sure that the animals, the plants, the waters continue to thrive just as much as they are working to help us thrive as well. And so when you come from that indigenous perspective, decisions on how things should be preserved or protected is going to be very different from the way that a traditionally trained archaeologist or cultural resources manager would come from it. Just for an example, there are a lot of archaeological sites, for instance, they'll have boulders that have evidence of grinding various nuts and seeds, etc. And they're scattered all over the landscape, particularly within California, we're well known uh, for harvesting acorns. And so you see a lot of these mortars and bedrocks. And for archaeologists, for something to be significant under the law, it has to be unique. And if you you have thousands and thousands of these mortars within boulders, then it's okay to, you know, that one, we already have a good example of it. So we don't need that. So you can destroy that. Whereas for the indigenous community, all of them are important to us because they tell the history of our people. Just because there's thousands of examples doesn't mean that that one that we're looking at to protect is any less important than any of the other ones. And so that's a, a, an example of a big difference between coming at it from a Western point of view and from an indigenous point of view. You know, you have an example, but they're all important to think about the larger picture, to talk about the history of a community within the particular location that you're at. The practice of archaeology is definitely slowly changing. I mean, I started practicing archaeology and going to national conferences, you know, in the late 1990s. And it's definitely changed where you have a lot of practicing archaeologists now talking to the communities in which they're working with. And that's what's most important. You know, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that Native people and even my own family always saw archaeologists as grave diggers, as people who came and destroyed the structures, bone lickers, people that would come and take and 
and mine information from the community and then go off into your lofty colleges and write these books and nothing ever came back to the community. The community never received anything. And a lot of times that information was taken or people, artifacts, et cetera, was taken without our permission. So you have a lot of scholars that basically built their careers on the backs of indigenous history and in some instances, quite specifically peoples in their bones. And so you now have a widening understanding of the implications of what has happened in the past and a number of people who are now reaching out to the communities and saying, what can I do on behalf of your community? I'm interested in studying your community. What is it that the community needs that maybe I can help with in order to create a beneficial relationship between the both of us? And that's one of the things that's most important and is actually a very indigenous perspective is reciprocity, right? So if you're coming to the community and you're asking for something, then what are you not necessarily giving something equal in exchange, but out of respect, what is it can you do for the community? And sometimes it has nothing to do with with archaeology or anything like that. It could be like, come, you know, come help me build a house. If you're a non-native person, if you've heard of NAGPRA, if you're aware that you should leave an arrowhead where it lays if, if you stumble upon it. Read that ProPublica resource. There are people who, who talk about this issue, and I know that it can be a little overwhelming because it's so legal heavy, but being aware of this issue can also lead you to being aware of the importance and sacredness of land and what we call cultural resources. And I think it really supports non-Native people's understanding of the interconnectedness of it all. To understand that, like, you may not think of, you know, going to a museum as an activity where you're going to reflect on land. But if you now go into that museum, you, you look at that really beautiful California Native basket, think about where it came from and who made it, who took it, and it being in that space, don't don't be digging <laughs> wherever you want and, and thinking that it has no consequence because it does, because you're on native land. We've erased native people's history, so you don't actually know what's going on, perhaps in your own backyard. So, so just be really careful. There's ways that we need you to show up and say things in meetings. I'm tired of being in meetings. And people coming up to me afterwards and saying, I'm glad you said that. And I'm like, well, why didn't you say that in the meeting to back me up? Because now I look like a jerk in front of all these people. Um, so if you're an ally, speak up, but also know your 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 space too, because there's oftentimes where, where allies, you know, they co-op the space and, and they're talking way too much. But I, I would appreciate for allies that I work with is just to back me up when I need you to back me up. Yep. I don't need you to explain everything for me. I don't need you to, you know, take over the room. But, you know, when I say something and you agree, like show that you agree instead of not saying anything. Allyship, it's hard. <laughs> Allyship's not easy. <laughs> you know, I just, I feel like I'm so tired. I mean, I had someone from a museum reach out and ask me and, the, and I worked with them for years and asked me about how to represent a tribe and, you know, and I was like, hey, what you're saying is good, but like, here's some edits. Like, it's just, it makes it more active, more engaging that like the native people are still here. And she was like, no, 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 this is how I want to represent it. I'm like, well, why are you asking me? <laughs> so it just, you know, there are 
ways of allies can be stronger allies. And yeah, there's, I think a lot of education that still needs to happen for just not just allies, right? Just people for everyone. I often make this joke of like when I start my, when I used to teach and I used to start my classes and I'd be so excited to start with like, you know, what is sovereignty? What is a native nation? And someone in the class would be like, what's a native American or what's an Indian? I'm like, Oh crap, we got to go way back. (laughs) We got to go from the beginning. So there's so much education that that needs to happen for people to even understand the process of NAGPRA and repatriation and allyship. Uh, And I love it that it's happening. I love it that it's happening. There's there's more and more conversation. There's, you know, ethnic studies is expanding. There's more and more Native American studies programs. Um, so take a Native American studies class. <laughs> that, I guess that's what I want to end on is take a Native American studies class. Because yeah, you'll need it in almost every aspect of every every major, every everything. Um yeah. <laughs> Non-native people are a hundred percent a part of like helping us and supporting us. It can't just be us that is that are saying these things. It has to come from non-Native allies as well. And of course, that doesn't mean like standing in place of Native and Indigenous people who are, you know, working on this stuff, but also being a part of a healthy process. So if you're an anthropologist or archaeologist, a non-Native anthropologist and archaeologist, how are you making this process easier for us? How are you working to culture shift within your institution? If you're outside of those spaces, how are you showing up for Native people who are pointing out these very strong issues within these spaces? And that can mean like joining a protest. That could be mean signing letters. That could mean if you're in these institutions, fighting to change some of these processes so that it makes it easier for Native people to repatriate. Fast forward to 2022. Um, like here in Southern California, the 405 freeway, they hit a cemetery. It's very interesting too, because on one side they encountered ancestors, right? Some of the archaeologists said, oh, well, this is just an inadvertent find. It's not a cemetery. Then suddenly on the other side, they, they hit burials there and it increases. And so if there's burials on one side of the freeway and significance on the other side, what does it tell you about when they put that that freeway in in the 1950s and the 1960s? It means that the core of that road, they went right through a cemetery. And who's responsible for that? And how do you recover from that? Um, what are the implications of that for con- considering work with our different agencies such as Caltrans and you know, other federal and state and county and municipal agencies, it, it just complicates it. But to the people, it means that their cemeteries were forgotten. Repatriation has a huge role from my perspective in healing Native communities because so much has been taken from us, you know, land dispossession, uh, you know, cultural dispossession, language and, and, and so on. Uh, when you're physically returning ancestors and, and their belongings through repatriation, perhaps you're doing a reburial, so you're bringing them back to the land, you're, you're trying to um, make their relationship to place right again. That can be deeply healing. And I, I would say, uh, you know, especially for folks who are lineal descendants, especially for folks who are, are deeply entrenched in this work, but it's not a given that the institutional work that goes into that repatriation is going to be easy, comprehensive, 
So when I say comprehensive, I mean an institution can do a repatriation through NAGPRA, call you up 10 years later, any any timeline really, and say, you know what, we just found another box. And all of that work you did, like maybe you got a NAGPRA grant and then you're able to, you know, bring community folks out to the reburial site and, you know, have a ceremony. And, and that was really great. But, you know, we we have more and, and we want to return it. And we actually have to go through like this almost a year long process to do that. Perhaps there's ways that NAGPRA is trying to get better at that kind of thing and being flexible uh, and institutions are working to try to get better at that. But it's upsetting, you know, it, it, it's upsetting when a community feels like, oh, we received folks back. We're writing this wrong. Uh, we are healing ourselves and, and we're healing these folks who, who were essentially incarcerated institutionally after their burials were disturbed. Um, and then now you're telling me that you didn't actually return this whole person. It's heartbreaking. I think anthropology and archaeology, you know, consistently try to find documentation to um, make Indian people and California Indian people specifically not human. Uh, we don't have human rights. We never have in archaeology and anthropology. The fact that you can unearth someone's dead and take them with you to study and we're still here living. You know, there's plenty of examples of Indian people watching anthropologists, you know, go into their cemeteries. Like, this is not that far removed. So it's still continuing. I like told my grandpa when I was like a teenager that I wanted to go to Cal. And he was like, you should go to Cal. You should become a lawyer. And then you should get our ancestors back, get our baskets back from Cal. That's one of the reasons why I became an archaeologist is to make sure that ancestors and their items get returned back and reburied into the ground and given back to the tribes to be housed how they want to. You have been listening to Challenging Colonialism. In this episode, you have heard from Dr. Brittany Arona, Sabine Talogan, Desiree Martinez, Dr. Vanessa Escovito, Greg Castro, Cindy Alvitre, and Alexi Sagona. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Martin Rizzo Martinez, and by Daniel Stoneblum. All interviews by myself, all audio engineering and editing by Daniel. All music by G. Gonzalez. This podcast is produced with support from California State Parks Foundation. Follow us on Twitter, subscribe, rate, and review. For more information, reading, and to get involved, see links in the notes. Stay tuned for our next episode, a dialogue on federal recognition in California. <laughs>